Yeah, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. The scripture reading for today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry, and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and they will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, this morning I just want to add my voice to that song. God, we need you now. I need you to make sense of my muddled ideas. I need you to help a finite creature describe the infinite creator and his ways and his purposes and his means. I need you to come alongside our feeble attempts to elicit faith and do what you do. Bring faith. Revive dry bones. Do what you have always done. We pray that you would do it even this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. My junior year of college was an incredibly important year in in my life. Uh, It was 94, 95, and that is the year that I met my wife and we began dating. It's also the year that I 
yielded my life to the call of God to enter into ministry. I had been resisting that with every fiber of my being, telling God anything but pastoral ministry. And through a series of events, God humbled me and brought me to the place where I yielded myself to that call on my life and began to throw myself into ministry opportunities, testing the waters, asking people, do you sense fruit? Do you see fruit? Do you sense God's call on my life also? I I picked up an internship in the church that I was attending, and for the first and only time in my life, I ran for office in my college. I ran as the student body chaplain candidate. There's something very weird about running to be the chaplain. Uh, And I am very grateful that I ran unopposed, because I don't really... I don't know how you run a campaign to be chaplain. I mean, you know, negative stuff is kind of out the door. It's disqualifying. Uh, but, but I ran unopposed, and I'd like to think that was because everyone just saw, oh, yes, he's the right man for the job. It was just no one else wanted to be student body chaplain. Uh, so I entered ministry as the student body chaplain. It was really nice to run unopposed. My... my roommate and friend was running as the student body president, and he had two or three candidates he was running against, and it was nasty, and I was just chilling, didn't have much to worry about. Uh, It's nice to run unopposed, but it's not something we as Christians ought to get used to. Uh, We are promised by Jesus himself that we will face opposition. Nehemiah chapter 4 is about opposition to the work of God and how Nehemiah and the people faced that opposition. They faced three particular challenges in this chapter, and there's three unique responses to each one of those challenges that I want to think with you about this morning. But before we do that, uh, we need to dive into two necessary discursions. Two necessary detours that we have to think about before we get to those challenges. Uh, The first is a a detour to think for a moment about kingdoms and what kind of kingdom the church is. Uh, A lot of times in my preaching or in my teaching, I emphasize the continuity between Israel and the church. But there is a significant point of discontinuity between Israel and the church, and we have to think about that for a moment. Israel was a physical, earthly kingdom with thrones and civil laws and armies with swords and shields and spears. There was also a tremendous overlap between Israel as a physical kingdom and the spiritual kingdom of God. We in the church are a representation of the spiritual kingdom of God, but we are not a physical kingdom. We have a king, certainly, King Jesus, but we don't have an earthly king. We don't have an army. We don't have civil laws. We're a spiritual kingdom, and so there is a significant 
point of departure between the church and Israel that comes into play when we think about how Israel was handling opposition in Nehemiah chapter 4. The second brief discursion or detour is about the nature of walls. Uh, Nehemiah is all about building the wall, right? And there have been a few people in the church that have kind of raised eyebrows and for good reason, about the idea of building walls. Because for two years, we've talked about we need to tear down the walls that divide us. Walls between political party and, you know, mask or not mask. And here now we're talking about building a wall. So what's the deal with walls? Well, it depends on what type of wall, right? There was, I remember, when the Berlin Wall fell. The Berlin Wall was a unique kind of wall that divided Berliners. It ran through the city and divided family from family. There have been walls in the history of the church that have divided believer from believer. Those walls have been torn down in Christ, right? He, div- he tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and every other dividing wall that would separate believer from believer. Re-erecting those type of walls would be sinful. But there's another type of wall, a, a wall that surrounds a city and keeps its inhabitants secure. A wall around, say, the city of Troy or the city of Jerusalem here in Nehemiah chapter 4 or even the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21 describes the walls that surround heavenly Jerusalem. What about that kind of wall? Is that an appropriate wall for the church to build, to maintain? And I would argue it is. It's uncomfortable to think in those terms because it seems to set up an us-them kind of mentality. And I understand that. But there is an element of an us-them in the Bible, in the New Testament, that is unavoidable. Jesus talks about my sheep that are in his pen, a pen of surrounded by walls and he is the gate the only people who come, the only sheep who come into the pen are the ones that the gatekeeper lets in book of first john i think is all about these kind of walls that surround the church doctrinal walls ethical walls moral walls that that keep the people of god unified together and secure even more broadly speaking though the wall that Nehemiah is building translates figuratively, representatively to the work of God. The work of God for Nehemiah was to build the wall. The work of us today isn't to build a physical wall. It, it, it's something else. To continue to spread the gospel. So, While walls are important, I think it's important to look at Nehemiah chapter 4 and the wall as representative of any work that God has called us to do. Okay, so those were the two detours. What were the challenges that the people of God were facing as they were building the wall? 
Well, the first challenge was ridicule and mockery. Senbalat and Tobiah, governors, political uh, officials in the area, were ridiculing and mocking the effort and the Jews for rebuilding the wall. They had their army, and with their army they were saying, oh, these feeble Jews, what are they trying to do? It was an attack on them as a people, on their weakness, and Sanballat was right. On the whole, this group of Jews was feeble when compared to their strength under David and Solomon. It was a small, beleaguered group that had come back from exile. They were a feeble group attempting to do a great, big task. And Sanballat mocks, are they going to restore this wall by themselves? It's not possible. It's too big a task. That wall was built by a nation far stronger, far bigger than them. And here they are, this feeble remnant coming back. Are they going to do it themselves? Are they going to offer sacrifices? Or I think even a better understanding of what that means is, are they going to pray the wall up? It's almost a a mocking of their faith. Not only are they not strong enough, but I don't even think their God is strong enough. What are they doing? This wall is broken down and it's beyond repair. Tobiah adds his two cents of a fox. Little tiny fox crawled across the wall. It would crumble it. The people faced ridicule and mockery. And today, the enemy of God's people relies on the same methods of opposition. Ridicule and mockery. It has a long history in the church. In fact, there's a piece of graffiti in Rome dating back to the second century that says, Alexamanos worships his God. And the picture is of a man being crucified, but the man has the head of a donkey. Meant to mock Christians for worshiping a crucified Savior. Today, you don't have to look far to find voices of ridicule and mockery. Maybe it's in your classroom. Maybe it's in the media. Maybe it's in academia. Voices that are saying Christians are bigots, Christians are narrow-minded, backwards, anti-intellectual. Christianity has nothing to offer the future. The church is outdated. Maybe those ridic- that ridicule or mockery comes in the form of questions. Why do you still go to church? Why do you believe that? Can you still believe that in a modern era? Voices of ridicule and mockery. Maybe it becomes more personal. I mentioned that when I ran for uh, student body chaplain, I ran unopposed, and officially I was, but there was opposition. Uh, there was a guy named Joel who started a whisper campaign. Don't vote for Dan. He'd be an awful chaplain. 
he wasn't wrong. Uh, I don't know what he hoped to do, though. I mean, if I voted for myself, I was still winning, so... But based on my track record, two years of disciplinary probation at Houghton College, I got to know the dean really well. So he wasn't wrong. But he was neglecting what God was currently doing. Maybe that kind of opposition comes as whispers in your own mind. You'll never be able to do it. You shouldn't volunteer for that. They need someone better. You've got nothing to offer. Your life is too big a mess. You can't put it back together. Why even bother sharing the gospel with that person? They know your story. Ridicule and mockery. How do we respond? Uh, Look to Nehemiah and the people and how they responded. They responded by praying and continuing to do the work. That has been the theme all through the book of Nehemiah. Praying and continuing to do the work. Praying and laboring. Doing the work. Notice Nehemiah does not engage Sanballat or Tobiah in a war of words. His first response was prayer. You think, oh, that's nice. Prayer. Well, it wasn't a nice, polite prayer. Let me read it again. This is verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. In other words, don't forgive them. Repay them for their evil. This is a a kind of prayer known as an imprecatory prayer. Are these kind of prayers appropriate? Is this kind of a hot-headed, wrong type of prayer for a follower of God to pray? Is this something you just find in the Old Testament but not the New? Well, I might be in the minority, but I think these kind of prayers are highly appropriate for the people of God. It's not just Nehemiah who prays prayers like this. They're all through the Psalms. They're on the lips of Jesus. Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you who stand in opposition to what God is doing. Paul, if anyone comes to you and preaches the gospel other than the gospel of grace. Let him be accursed. Or the book of Revelation, the voice of the martyrs crying out. The voice of the perfected saints in heaven crying out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge? These prayers 
are appropriate, uncomfortable, yes, but appropriate prayers. Realize that these are not just Nehemiah's personal rivals, right? This isn't your your rival for the starting quarterback position on the football team. It's not the kid who made fun of you in class because your shirt didn't match your shorts. It's not the boss who passed you over for a promotion. These were people who had aligned themselves against God's people, against God's purposes, and hence against God. So Nehemiah says they've provoked you to anger. Praying these kind of prayers leaves justice in the hands of God. It's a way of saying, Lord, I know, vengeance is yours. It's not mine. I won't exact my pound of flesh. But I pray for you to bring justice to those who stand against you and your people. Say, Dan, do you ever pray like this? Yes. So be careful. No, just kidding. (laughs) I do. Because the Lord taught me to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I pray, thy kingdom come, I know what that means. It means come and eliminate all those who oppose you. Come and bring justice. Come and establish right and punish the wicked. So Nehemiah and the people prayed and continued to work. They threw themselves into the work and they built the wall to half its height and closed the gaps, all while enduring this ridicule and this mockery. But they faced a second challenge. And that was the threat of not words, but of actual physical violence. When Sanballat saw that the the work was still going on, he was infuriated. He and the Samaritan army and the Arabs and others who had joined him, people of Ashdod and the Ammonites. And they plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem, not with words, Not with blog posts, but swords and spears and bows and arrows. There's a progression of hostility from verbal hostility to physical violence. And the people of God have often been subject to persecution in the form of physical violence. It was true in the ancient world, and it is true today. Here I want to walk a fine line between being, you know, chicken little and saying the sky is falling. Don't want that, but I don't want to be an ostrich who just puts his head in the sand, though I don't think they actually really do that. Um, Pay attention to the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. Forbes magazine in 2021 published an article said that one in eight Christians 
worldwide live in countries where they face persecution. Between October 2019 and September 2020, so 12 months, more than 340 million Christians were living in countries where they might suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. Among that number, 309 million Christians were living in countries where they might suffer high or extreme levels of persecution. That's one in eight worldwide. That translates to one in six believers in Africa, two out of five believers in Asia, one out of 12 believers in Latin America. During that 12-month reporting period, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. 1,710 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons. On average, every day, 13 Christians were killed for their faith. 12 churches or Christian buildings attacked. 12 Christians unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned, and five Christians abducted for faith-based reasons. How do we respond? Certainly, prayer for and care for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. But what if we live under the threat of violence? What if we're in the position of Nehemiah and those Israelites who saw men just across the field with swords and shields and bows and arrows? What did they do? They prayed and they prepared. They prayed and they took action. Verse 9 But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. They took action, but they understood their action needed to be bathed in prayer. Translating their response to our day, I find it exceedingly challenging. Partly because we don't take up spear and sword and shield and bow and arrow. Remember that detour about we're a spiritual kingdom. But also partly because I'm really, and I didn't realize it until this week, really kind of burnt out on angry apologetics and culture war kind of jargon. I'm tired of those who go around looking to pick a fight, looking for a reason to boycott Target or Disney or the NFL or the MLB. Don't boycott the MLB. Don't do it. It's just wearying. But maybe, maybe, uh, in my weariness, I've allowed the pendulum to swing maybe a little bit too far. And I've become 
too timid. John Calvin, I remember a quote from him. He said, even a dog barks when his master is attacked. I'd be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet remain silent. Through the history of the church, there have been tremendous men and women who have taken up the cause of defending the truth of God against error, against attack. People in the early days of the church like Tertullian or Justin Martyr who wrote an apology saying this is who the Christians are. You don't need to fear them. This is what Christians do. This is what they believe. This is why they believe it. Come and join us. The best apologists have been winsome, full of conviction, loving representatives of Jesus Christ. I feel maybe we're in danger of our apology lacking conviction. We want to be winsome to the point where it's possible we're just accommodating and compromising. The people of Israel mounted a defense in prayer, and I think we are called to, not just the great men who are intellectuals and women who are intellectuals in the church. The book of Peter tells us that we all need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Be prepared to give a defense of your faith. Nehemiah also reinforced the walls. Here's the low point on the walls. We'll station guards there. I think it behooves us as a church to think about where are the low points on the wall? Where are we most likely to feel the attacks of our enemy come? What points of doctrine do we need to make sure we re-emphasize, that we understand, that we communicate clearly? What portions of our congregation are most in danger? And it's hard not to say it's our kids. As a church... We have to do a job of communicating clearly, winsomely, with full conviction, the truth of the gospel to our children. Through the teaching, through catechesis, through sermons, through inviting them to join us here in worship and be a part of what we're doing so they catch the gospel, so they learn to worship as the full body of Christ. People prayed and made preparation. There was a third challenge, and I am way out of time. Third challenge was discouragement. Sanballat's whispering campaign and threats had taken its toll, and the exhaustion of the labor had taken its toll. The people had bent their back to this hard work for weeks. And they were exhausted, and they were discouraged. 
In verse 10, the people of Judah were saying, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. Vince Lombardi, or maybe George Patton, I've seen it attributed to both, who said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Life can get exhausting. Just the grind of week-in, week-out life can be discouraging. Then you throw into that mix things like pandemics, job loss, turmoil in the family, financial hardships. It can seem like you're just working harder and harder and not getting ahead in the church, in life. It can feel like we're the proverbial Sisyphus always rolling the rock and never getting it to its destination. And it can be discouraging. So how do we respond to discouragement? Well, Nehemiah shared his faith with the people and called them to remember. Remember the Lord, he says. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember. It is remarkable that we could forget God. But we do. When life grinds or trouble comes, the great realities of the Bible can be replaced so quickly by anxious thoughts. Throughout the Old Testament, the people got in all kinds of trouble because they forgot. And the Lord established for them all kinds of ways of remembering. Hey, you crossed this river. Remember what I did? Build an altar. Hey, remember what I did in bringing you out of Egypt? Have a feast. Regular ways of remembering what God had done for them. How he had bared his arm, showed his might on their behalf. In the New Testament, we have one special feast to remind us. To remind us of the depth of God's love for us. We come to the Lord's table and we remember the broken body and the spilt blood. We remember his victory over our enemies. We remember that the battle has already been fought and won, the decisive battle. So remember and continue the fight. Uh, Wherever you're doing a work of God, a good work, whether it's in the church or in your family or in your community, expect opposition. Our enemy does not want to see the wall rebuilt. He does not want to see the work of God. Our good works continue. He will oppose us in one form or another. Meet that opposition, opposition with faith, prayer, and perseverance in the work. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have such a long, rich history of people who persevered in the work, but even more importantly, a God who persevered in faithfulness, a commitment to his purpose, a commitment to his people to bring about restoration. Father, we're thankful that you've called us to be a part of your people and your work. We pray that you would find us faithful, strengthen our feeble arms for the work. In Jesus' precious name, amen.